0: Hello, We the People friends. In honor of the 234th anniversary of the ratification of the U.S. Constitution, the National Constitution Center is launching an exciting crowdfunding campaign. Thanks to our friends at the John Templeton Foundation, every dollar you give toward We the People will be doubled with a generous one-to-one match, up to a total of $234,000. This is a wonderful opportunity to show your support of constitutional education And we're so grateful for your passion, your engagement, and your devotion to lifelong learning and civil constitutional dialogue and debate. Please go to constitutioncenter.org slash we the people. Now, on to today's episode. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. November 19th marks the 158th anniversary of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. In honor of the anniversary and of Thanksgiving, this episode will discuss the historical and constitutional significance of the Gettysburg Address with two of America's leading historians. Kate Mazur is professor of history at Northwestern University. She is the author most recently of Until Justice Be Done, America's First Civil Rights Movement from the Revolution to Reconstruction. Kate, it is wonderful to have you back on the show.
1: It's great to be here. Thank you so much.
0: And Sean Wilentz is the George Henry Davis, 1886 professor of American history at Princeton University. He is the author most recently of No Property in Man, Slavery and Anti-Slavery at the Nation's Founding. He's currently writing a book entitled The Triumph of American Anti-Slavery. Sean, it is wonderful to have you back on the show.
2: As ever, Jeffrey.
0: Friends, I am going to take the great privilege of reading the Gettysburg Address and asking you to respond to it and, and, and helping us understand its light. So let's begin with the first paragraph. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. Sean, I hear at least two themes in that first paragraph, the preservation of the Union and the eradication of slavery. You've argued that there's a third theme as well, and that is democracy. Tell us more about that. Well, it's in the first six words. I mean, he is um, Lincoln at Gettysburg
2: is rooting the founding of the nation, not in the Constitution, but in the Declaration of Independence. And that's important because he is then therefore talking about the phrase that all men are created equal, which he's gonna come back to. So America is rooted in inequality. There are those who say this is a great, you know, act of demain by by, by by Lincoln that he was somehow slipping the, uh, the the Declaration into the Constitution at Gettysburg, you know, in front of in front of thousands of people. No, this has been a trope in anti-slavery, especially Republican Party discourse for a very long time, that that there are that the, 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 the Founding is organic. There's an organic hole between the Constitution and the Declaration, and you cannot have one without the other. So from the very beginning, it's about equality. He's then going to develop that theme throughout the speech um, at, until the very end, the very last words, which we'll be getting to, which are also about democracy. What, what Lincoln is do- doing here, I think, is talking about union, for sure, and slavery. Slavery is a word that does not appear in the document for reasons we can go into. The word democracy does not appear in the document for reasons we can go into. But the speech is about both. It's about how, in fact, you can have neither union nor democracy without at the end of slavery. That's the way That's the way things had shaped up as of November eighteen sixty three
0: You can have neither union nor democracy without the end of slavery. Kate, do you agree with Sean's interpretation or not, and what do you hear in that famous first paragraph of the Declaration of independence
1: i I more or less agree with Sean's interpretation, although I don't really see the Constitution mentioned here at all. um so I'm not sure that I would agree that he's making a case that the Constitution is part of his description of a nation founded on the principle that all men are created equal. Um, I would just add a little bit of context here, which I think, you know, helps us understand where we are uh, chronologically and in, in, in context uh, of the Civil War itself. This was a time when uh, it was almost a year after Lincoln had issued the Emancipation Proclamation. And over the course of the year 1863, had been forced to defend it many times and had continued to um, defend and refuse to go back on or repeal or rescind the Emancipation Proclamation. So he was, uh, and meanwhile, the United States forces in the battle against the Confederacy enjoyed um, a number of really important victories, particularly in the summer of 1863. And so um, he had recently, right before the Gettysburg Address, um, continued to defend, the Emancipation Proclamation, defend emancipation and the abolition of slavery as an important goal by this time in the Civil War. Um, And that is part of what he's doing here by alluding back to the Declaration of Independence and this principle that all men are created equal.
0: Thank you so much for that. All right, let me read the next couple sentences. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives, that the nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here, have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. Sean, your reaction, Kate gave us some of the historical context uh, leading up to this moment where he's saying we're met on a great battlefield of that war. Uh, What what are your thoughts about the significance of the timing of the speech and also your response to Kate's observation that that she heard uh, the Emancipation Proclamation and the Declaration uh, in the speech so far, but not a lot about the Constitution. Yeah, I mean the Constitution is
2: implicit in almost everything that took, that Lincoln ever talks about ever, because it's the great document that he reverences so much. I mean he's constantly throughout most of his career, in fact, referred to the Constitution as the the crux, the point of the the beginning of beginning with fourscore and seven years ago, is that the nation was not founded in seventeen eighty seven with the ratification of the Constitution. It was founded in 1776. So he is combining his reverence for one, but he's going to plant in the Constitution the ideas of equality. That's what a lot of people were not willing to do in 1863. That's what distinguished Republicans and distinguished Lincoln in particular from a lot of other people who said, well, the Southerners all said that the Declaration was a bunch of glittering generalities that meant nothing, right? And then there are a lot of other people who said, well, the Constitution is where the law is. Yes, he would agree with that, but he's saying it's implanted in the ideas of the Declaration. That's where the Constitution fits in. Here, I mean, look, <laughs> the Battle of Gettysburg, I, Kate will know better than I how many, how many fell on both sides in that battle. But it was horrendous. And this is, people forget, he's dedicating a cemetery. And for that, this is maybe the best cemetery dedication speech ever given in world history. But that's the, the point of the speech. That's what he's there for. So that's what he's saying he is there for. Now, the point to remember, I think, and see uh, like what Kate has to, think, has to say about this, by 1863, Union losses were horrendous. This war, which some people had thought, where there was one Confederate named James Chestnut who said that he would be able to drink all of the war spilled in this battle, this is in 1861, in a thimble. Okay? They thought that there was going to be, you know, it was going to be over quick one way or the other. Here we are in November 60, 63 after Gettysburg. It's continuing, it is a harrowing experience. He also knows that American, uh, sorry, well, yes, American, which is, say, the Union cause depends on keeping morale together, and morale c- goes up and down, and, and it's a lot to do with the losses on the battlefield. So that he's taking this moment, I think, to recognize that, that, that and, and it's not just those who died, it's not just their families, it's, it's, it's a catastrophe, this war, in many ways. It's horrific. And I think he's taking the moment to, given what he has to do that day, to mark that, and then to say that those deaths will not have been in vain. That there is a purpose to all of this slaughter, and you're not, he's not minimizing the
0: slaughter. He's memorializing it, but he's saying there's something more. Thanks so much for that. Kate, what is your response to this part of the speech and the gravity of the war situation at this moment in time?
1: Well. I- a couple years ago, or several years ago now, my my younger son actually was invited as a, I think as a fourth grader to memorize the Gettysburg Address. Um, and I had the chance to spend some time with it in that context and think about it as a piece of oratory. And one of the things that struck me about that, um, where Lincoln says, but in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground the brave men living and dead who struggled here have consecrated it. It's really drawing attention to the occasion, I think, and to the idea that here he is giving this speech surrounded by living people, but that it's a hum uh, a humble kind of statement that it's not by having a ceremony here on the battlefield that we really consecrate this ground. It's the loss of life. It's the people who gave their lives um, to try to, you know, save the union or to abolish slavery, if that is the case, um, that are really being honored here. And he goes on to say, you know, the world will not uh, long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. And I, I just think that's a really powerful statement of Lincoln's understanding of the significance of this war and the and what the nation was going through and the sacrifices that people were really making.
0: Sean, Kate read the beginning of the, the next sentence, so I'll Read it as well, and and, and the one after that, and, and ask for your thoughts. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. Your reaction.
2: Well, this is Lincoln at his most, I don't know,
0: humble is the word,
2: but I mean, he is he is taking down the people there in, at one level, saying, you know, we cannot in any way match what the sacrifice was. However, we still have a job to do. And that job is to redeem these deaths, to redeem this moment. And the only way that we can act in this is not to memorialize them, but to make real what they died for. And and, and that's really the second and, and so it's Lincoln at both at his most Humble, which is an aspect of Lincoln, which is really important, I think, oratorically, but also personally, but also exhortatory. He's also telling people there's still a battle to be, there's still a war to be won. And that is up to us, the living, that is our job. Um, I I found this in many ways, the most powerful moment in the speech, or one of the most powerful moments in the speech, um, um, where he's just saying, he's kind of undermining the, the ceremony they're in. This is not so important. What's important is what they did. And what is important is what we yet have to do in order to redeem their sacrifice.
0: We're about to reach the famous final paragraph, but this parsing of the speech is so productive that I wonder, Kate, if I went too quickly over any of the early sentences. Actually, I'll just ask you that. Do you want to go back or shall I? Shall we continue?
1: Either way, I mean, I would say, I'll just say it. Uh, the The repetition of words again. When you think about this as a speech, and and having gone through this with my son, the repetition of words here is really fascinating. Um, you know, he says we cannot consecrate this ground. The brave men who struggled here have consecrated it again. He he repeats that word. He repeats the word dedicated. Um, he repeats the word devotion. Um, and there's just a kind of rhythm to it that I I can only imagine. You know what it would have been like to hear it at the time. Um, but that's part of, of course, what makes it such a, a great speech and a, a piece of writing and kind of American literature that's gone down in history is the way that he somehow um, captured a kind of rhythm and a kind of language that's both really straightforward and uses a vocabulary that's pretty familiar to us and yet turns it to these very um, high purposes of, you know, as Sean said, both, um, honoring and respecting what had happened on this battlefield and exhorting Americans to further struggle and really further sacrifice to, as he's going to say, uh, you know, remake the nation, put it on a new ground as the war ends.
0: Sean, you had called this the greatest funeral speech ever. Uh, Was Lincoln modeling himself on Pericles' funeral oration? And what more can you tell us about the speech as oratory before we work our way up to the final paragraph
2: you're raising an interesting question given the other speech that was given that day which was very much modeled on pericles and which was nowhere near as good and that was given by edward everett a massachusetts Whig politician we don't go into him but he he was the really actually he was more of the star of the show i mean lincoln was not known as a great orator in many ways because he did not he wasn't a windbag the way that a lot of 19th century orators were so edward Everett gets up a speech that's endless you know and and, and completely forgotten and he is absolutely emulating Pericles. Um, Lincoln is not. And that's what makes the speech so powerful, in fact. He's not, he's not, he has is, is great oratory, and he's not in the least oratorical. It is very plain. It is very plain. And, and, and that's its power, I think. So, it, it, you know, Lincoln is, and but by the way, it's not as if Lincoln's ignorant of all of this stuff. He knows that classical tradition but he also knows that it's not befitting this moment. And and, and so he speaks in, in very plain, direct English. I mean, maybe four score and seven years ago sounds a bit odd to modern ears, but people got it then. Otherwise it is, how many words? 272, three, however many. He, he managed to put together the purpose of the war from the American standpoint, not the Confederate standpoint, the American standpoint. And, and, and to synthesize it and boil it down to this very, very brief and spare uh, speech. That is a remarkable achievement, I think, to have been able to do that. I can't think of too many other speeches given to exhort people in a wartime, forget about funerals, in wartime, that are at once both more
0: direct and more soaring than this speech. All right, it's time for the last paragraph, and here's the beginning of it. It is rather for us to be dedicated here to the great task remaining before us that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they here gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain. Let me stop there, Kate, and ask for your thoughts.
1: Well, he is now, this is the most, more exhortatory part of the speech where he's saying, the only way to really honor the people who died here is to keep fighting, uh, to keep fighting until, you know, our side wins this war. And uh, Lincoln, you know, by this time, and particularly in the wake of the Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln is, you know, fighting the war in the kind of, some historians have called it a hard war way. I mean, he has, he along with generals uh, have transformed the way the war itself was fought um, of necessity. It began uh, as a war that was fought in relatively conventional ways. As uh, Sean mentioned, it was a war that was many people on both sides expected that it would be very short, that not many lives would be lost. Um, And as the war had evolved, Lincoln himself had taken positions, he didn't necessarily think he was going to take um, the soldiers and officers had put themselves in positions and had began fighting in ways that they didn't necessarily think they were going to have to be fighting in. Um, And so, you know, in some ways, this is we can talk about the soaring oratory, the exhortation to keep going, Uh, but is also, in a way, looking ahead to a very dark project, which is more people are going to die in this effort, and he's trying to explain why it's worthwhile.
0: Sean, your thoughts on the beginning of this remarkable sentence?
2: No, I think that Kate really hit it when she the darkness of this and 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 you don't always see this up front but there's always that dark side into in lincoln and, and to lincoln's what lincoln has to say um it's not it's not as if it's going to be easy you know sometimes exhortations you know up over the hill you know um boom, boom, bold boys henry V, fifth all of that and that's not this at all he, he is saying you know it's lots of people are going to die lots of people are going to die before this is over and that's he doesn't say that, but that is, I think, as Kate said, is, is implicit in what he's talking about. I mean, the war weighed very, very heavily on Abraham Lincoln, and um, every aspect of it. Um, he would go to the telegraph office to see what was going on, hear what was going on. But every single day, you know, every time he had to, you know, get a deserter shot, you know, he's, he's thinking about it. Um, so it is hard war, as Kate said. I mean, this is a new kind of warfare. It's kind of a you know, uh, no holds barred or something, how to describe it, but it it is a terrific type of warfare. Um, um, but, But it's one that's weighing heavily on Lincoln. It's not as if he's, you know, zipping up and down. He wants to win this war and he's happy for victories, but he's also aware of the human disaster that's going on around him. Remember, he was born in Kentucky. And so, you know, even with the Southerners, you know, he's not reveling in Southerners being killed either, really. He wants to win the battles, but he understands the human cost.
0: That this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom. Kate.
1: Oh, we're really going microscopic now. Um, yeah, so here is where, you know, this is a, obviously a ringing line, and he is directly alluding to the abolition of slavery here um, and to uh, his commitment, I would argue, the commitment that he made um, to turning the war into an abolition war Uh, most pointedly made that commitment through the Emancipation Proclamation, which he issued on January 1st, uh, 1863, and has stuck by, right? So uh, despite the fact that it was politically controversial um, a lot of Republicans were worried that it was going to result in them losing elections some northern Republicans were kind of rebelling against the idea that this had been was turning officially turning into a war to defeat slavery of course parenthetically uh, it had been clear from the very beginning of the war that the war itself had a destructive influence on slavery enslaved people themselves made that clear by escaping to union lines by refusing to to work in situations where uh, slavery's bonds were weakened by white Southern men leaving for the war. Um, And so, but the president's acknowledgement through the Emancipation Proclamation that this was indeed a war that was going, in which the US government was going to officially sanction the destruction of slavery. And by the way, the uncompensated destruction of slavery. uh, He makes that clear starting in January of 1863, and then, despite the controversy, despite the opposition, even within his own party, his um, sticking with it. And so, in this address, he is able to kind of turn that into a kind of soaring statement that, again, doesn't explicitly reference slavery, but says, you know, um, that our goal is that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom. I think that also, you know, refers to his understanding that it that this um, war is giving birth to a new version of the United States, right? So that we are never going to be the same after this war, um, and that just as 1776, which he alluded to earlier, was the kind of original birth of the United States, we are going to have a rebirth of the United States under new terms when this war is over. Uh, I think that's a really important kind of implication here.
0: That this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom. Sean, is that the announcement of a new United States or the fulfillment of the promise of the original declaration? I mean, both. I mean, the fact that he began with four score and seven years ago
2: means that that was when the nation was founded in the declaration. We are going to have a rebirth of freedom that he's referring, it's both continuity and change, right? The country is based on these ideals, but they have to be reborn if we're going to preserve freedom at all. And I think that's what's going on. It's a very, it's interesting. As Kate said, first of all, it's important to recognize the Emancipation Proclamation wasn't all that popular necessarily in large parts of the North. And so, you know, just because he signs it on January 1st doesn't mean that everybody's jumping up and down. So he has to make very clear, he's still fighting that battle politically, and he's going to be coming up for re-election in a year in 1864. So, you know, all of these things are on his mind. And, but by not referring to slavery directly, he's doing a lot of different things, I think. Um, He is unequivocally standing by his decision, you know, in in, in January, and even before January, this war had become a war of abolition, as, as Kate puts it. But at the same time, He's seeing the abolition of slavery as a, as a transformation, or it's not a transformation solely, it's a, it's a change, a dramatic change in the nation itself and what the meaning of equality is, that the original meaning of equality does not cut it anymore. You, you can't stand by that anymore. You have to expand it, right? It was great to have it at the beginning, it departed from the rest of the world. It started a new nation. That's our nation. That's the nation we live in. But it's not going to be able to be conducted in the same way that it was four score and seven years ago. And it's going to require the, the abolition of slavery. But notice, in a sense, the abolition of slavery is, 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 is it is larger than the abolition of slavery, actually. There's something even beyond that, right, which is transforming an entire concept of how nations can be run, how this nation should be run. Everything is going to change on this account. And and that's really true about this. I mean, you know, it's it's a momentous event, the abolition of slavery in the United States. Extraordinary. But that also has larger effects beyond the act itself. And I think he's trying to get at that by using that phraseology.
0: And that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Kate?
1: I think this connects to the first part of the sentence and to what Sean was just saying about a kind of sense that this is not a struggle that's only important here in the United States, but it's this idea that The the, uh, very principle of a Republican form of government, small r Republican form of government is being tested. Uh, The idea that the experiment uh, of the United States that emerged out of the independence from Great Britain and the attempt to form a new nation founded on Republican, small r Republican principles, that was also a federated nation, right, with states and a national government. Um, the idea that this was an experiment of um, important magnitude uh, globally, and that the failure of this experiment and the breakup of the United States in Lincoln's view, and, and I would, you know, argue that this is not, as Sean was saying, this is not a, a speech that can be separated from politics, right? He's p- appealing to a higher um, kind of idea that it matters whether the United States dissolves, um, falls apart, it doesn't matter only to us, it matters to the entire world, right? That if this nation shatters and can never be put back together again, what about other uh, efforts to escape from monarchy? What about other efforts to form nations based on uh, the idea of democracy, the idea that people um, can choose their government, right? And so he's he's giving the struggle a global historical proportion. Um, I think it's, you know, it's. It, it, we could ask the question, did it really have that significance if we look back historically and think comparatively about all of the different kinds of anti-monarchical struggles that were going on um, in many places around the world at the time? But it certainly serves Lincoln's purposes right now as a, a purpose of as president of the United States. How do you turn, give this war meaning? How do you galvanize people to keep struggling and keep sacrificing, even at the expense of their lives and their, the lives of their children and their brothers and their husbands? Um, and so, you know, this is another way that he's giving it meaning by alluding to um, this, you know, experiment in um, self-government, government by the people that uh, the United States represents.
0: And that government of the people, by the people, for the people— Shall not perish from the earth, Sean.
2: Jeff, I'm going to start with a joke, which you can cut. Okay, you can cut this part, but I got to tell the joke anyway, right? And the joke is this: Imagine Lincoln is 2021, and he's the president. He's about to give this speech, and he's coming to the end, and he can't figure it out. He says, "It just should it be government of the people, or government by the people, or government for the? I can't make up my mind."
0: Just throw it all in.
2: So he goes to a political consultant who tells him, "Throw it all in," right? Three. Um, that's not the reason he did it. I mean, I think this sums up the entire speech and why it is about, why I think it's about democracy in particular. Um, he doesn't use the word democracy any more than he uses the word slavery. And he doesn't do that because the word democracy then usually, usually meant you were referring to the Democratic Party. It was sometimes known as the democracy. And so Lincoln rarely, I think very rarely refers to democracy in anywhere in his writings, speeches, etc. But when he does, when he's trying to talk about democracy, he talks about government of the people. He talks about a popular government. He talks about, he has used other words to convey that idea. And that's what I think he's, he's, he is talking about here, um, that, that this, this democracy um, is at stake here. It's a democracy that started in 1776, now must be reborn, But unless we do this, unless we win this war, then, as Kate said quite eloquently, then democracy, republicanism, democracy, anti-mericalism, whatever you want to call it, but fundamentally democracy is destroyed worldwide. Remember, there are very few republics. There are many other in in this hemisphere, but there aren't many big republics out there. You know, we're still in a world of aristocrats and monarchs for the most part. Many of whom would have been just as happy to see the American Republican experiment fail. They've been predicting its failure from the beginning this is an acid test not just for the united states but for a very idea of democracy the very idea the very possibilities if we lose this then democracy is going to be dead for a, it's going to be dead for all intents and purposes and that's the stake i mean that's why it's at the end and that's why it's 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 so powerful i think um, but I think it, it's what, it, again, unites these all of these concepts. He doesn't talk much about union at all in this speech. It's interesting. I mean, he talks about the new birth of freedom, that slavery, but he doesn't talk about the union much, but they're all there. And I think
0: that democracy is what, is what one of the things that holds them all together. Hello again, we the people friends. The National Constitution Center relies on your support to offer nonpartisan constitutional education, learning, and light to Americans of all ages. Thanks to the John Templeton Foundation, every dollar you give to support We the People's podcast campaign will be doubled with a generous one-to-one match, up to a total of $234,000. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash We the People, and thank you for your support of the show and of our mission. Our motto in the spirit of Justice Brandeis is, come let us reason together, and it's so meaningful to learn with you every week. That's constitutioncenter.org slash we the people. Kate, what's the context for Lincoln's reconception of democracy? After all, the southern states, John C. Calhoun said they could secede democratically, but he's insisting on the popular sovereignty of we the people as a whole. Tell us about the context, political and constitutional, for his notion that the future of democracy was at stake.
1: Well, it's a complicated moment, you know, really, for him to be saying that. And a complicated thing to invoke democracy and the will of the people when the will of the most powerful southern white people had been to leave this country, right? So he's actually in the process of exerting the maximal force the United States government can muster against the professed will of the white South. Uh, and he is in a way that no previous American president had done. You know, wielding military force in the name of democracy, uh, in the name of preservation of a nation in which a lot of people had decided they are no longer consent to being in this nation. Um and so, you know, again, i I think that uh, this is this reflects um some of the ways in which, as you know, this is a, a f- phenomenal speech. It's a phenomenal piece of writing. It's a it's wonderful to have this kind of slow, Uh, walkthrough of it, but it is also a political speech in a political moment in the life of a presidency, right? And he is a commander in chief of a nation at war. He is advocating for the draft, the non-consensual, you know, draft of men into this fight because they had come to the end of the people, most Northern men who were willing to volunteer. So there's a lot of, you know, coercion Going on uh, behind the scenes of this address, whether it's drafting men into military service or coercing, coerce, coercing, coercing uh, the southern, you know, uh, Confederate states back into, um, or by military force back into the Union, and by also by the force of the United States military moving through the slaveholding states, emancipating um, the enslaved. And so, it's an interesting moment to be invoking the kind of future of democracy. Um, of the people, by the people, and for the people. You know, we can only hope at this moment in 1863 that we will get back to a moment when we'll have peaceful transitions of power, when we will not be relying on, you know, the United States military forces to kind of enforce our vision of democracy, uh, you know, on the on on other on other people. So I think it's um, it's an interesting moment for that, and I hope we can talk a little bit as well about how even in this moment in the fall of 1863, a discussion of Reconstruction is already very much on the table, and it's going to be less than a month later that Lincoln is going to introduce his vision of bringing former Confederate states back into the Union, uh, his very constitutional vision of bringing former Confederate states back into the Union, um, and it is uh, expressed in very, very different terms from the terms of the Gettysburg Address. Just again, drawing a distinction between this moment of ceremony and oratory versus the nuts and bolts of how do you, in this constitutional order that we have been given, right? How do you then try to constitutionally re um, bring the states back into the union? And Lincoln's idea for that is very conventional in constitutional terms, unlike what Republicans will do later in 1865 and 1866 when they actually change the Constitution. So maybe we can talk a little about that as well.
0: Sean, uh, before we talk about Reconstruction, let's talk more about secession. Uh, You've written the book on the rise of American democracy called The Rise of American Democracy. Tell us the degree to which Lincoln's notion that secession was unconstitutional was central to his conception of democracy. And was the conception of democracy, uh, which he derived from James Wilson, unique to him? Or was it uh, more broadly shared at the time of the Gettysburg Address? Well, it's more broadly shared, but I mean, I think, look, in this first inaugural, facing
2: the continuing secession of southern states, they haven't all gone yet, um, he just pronounces secession the essence of anarchy at one level. So that this is overriding the national majority. You know, the, the, the Constitution states that in national affairs, the national majority is sovereign. So popular sovereignty exists and secession denies it. That's number one. It cannot be denied in his view. So democracy, as he sees it, which America has developed by this time, demands, demands that secession be crushed. The very idea of secession be crushed. On the question of the popular sovereignty of white Southerners, I mean, he was of the opinion that there was no reason to believe that these, con- con- these, these the fire eater conventions conveyed the, the, the true will of the Southern white people. Um, he didn't believe that for a moment. Maybe he, he should have believed it a little bit more, but that's another question. The point is, he thought of that as illegitimate even of itself, which connects to a whole idea about democracy and slavery. He writes someplace in a fragment, which um, we're not sure he wrote, but he's pretty sure he wrote that. He writes, I would neither be a master nor a slave. That is my idea of democracy. In other words, slavery is by its very essence undemocratic." When he says, you know, the nation is going to be divided half slave, half free, he's it's going to be divided half democratic and undemocratic. And this connects with this whole idea about Southern society, which he had come from, which his parents had escaped. It's being run by an oligarchy. It's being run by a tiny, tiny, you think about the 1%, it's a tiny, tiny percentage of the white population is controlling Southern society, both economically and, 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 and politically. And he sees that too. That is fundamentally undemocratic in his view. So in that sense, the war against secession and the war to end slavery in both levels is a war for democracy. And and there's no contradiction in that for him. Um, Now, there are people, plenty of copperheads, plenty of people out there are saying, no, 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 you're not doing this. What about the people out there? And we can get into the questions about habeas corpus and all the rest of it. But the fact is that in his mind, he is unswerving in this belief, in this this, absolute certainty, in fact, That on his back, and then even more so after the Emancipation Proclamation, on the the Union causes lies the future of democracy, and that everything it's fighting is undemocratic, anti-democratic, in his
0: view, without question. So that's the the bit on secession. Kate, do you agree with Sean's powerfully stated thesis that for Lincoln, uh, slavery was undemocratic, that the war against slavery was a war for democracy and that in Lincoln's view, the original constitution was not pro-slavery and therefore uh, slavery had to be eradicated to fulfill its promise or not?
1: I, I think that's an interesting, um, it's an interesting set of questions that needs to be put in the historical context. So did Lincoln think that slavery was undemocratic? Absolutely. Uh, Lincoln thought that, you know, nobody, sh- no human being should be enslaved. Lincoln thought that the Southern, that slavery turned enslavers into oligarchs, right? He, I mean, so everything that Sean said about his view that slavery was undemocratic, I agree with. Um, But Lincoln, when elected president in 1860, would not have aggressively tried to eradicate slavery in the States. He didn't think that would have been constitutional, right? So this gets to Lincoln's views on the constitution. I think, you know, a lot of historians have shown that, yes, he would have tried to stop the spread of slavery into the federal territories. He would have probably put Republicans in patronage positions in the South, which slaveholders would not have wanted, right? He would have done everything in his constitutional, in what he believed was in his constitutional power to weaken slavery around the margins, but he fully recognized, as did many, most Republicans, uh, that... In the constitutional order as it, as it existed in 1860, slavery was legal in the states where it existed, and the federal government could not reach in and just abolish it. Nor would you have, would he have, like, um, you know, started a war to to stop it, right? I mean, and so the war was brought to him, and in the course of the war, as we know, a year and a half into the war. He decided that the wartime exigencies were such that he was going to invoke the war powers of the presidency because he still didn't believe that in peacetime he, as president, or with respect to any state that was still in the union, he as president had the power to directly interfere with slavery. So, as a war president, invoking um, you know the amorphous war powers of the president, he issued the Emancipation Proclamation. Now, did that serve the idea that? you know, slavery was, had been an undemocratic force in American life? Yeah, absolutely. But would he have done that if there hadn't been a war or anything remotely like that? No, he wouldn't have, right? So there's a convergence of what, you know, Lincoln believed in a kind of, you know, uh, what were his politics, what kind of ideology did he believe in, is not the same, or had to meet his views on the Constitution and the nature of American federalism, uh, which meant that he w- wasn't going to go and, you know, try to start abolishing slavery when he became president, absent a war. Um, and also he wasn't, you know, he didn't move as quickly as he could have against slavery as president. And and so, you know, I mean, right. There are, there. this, this is a, you know, kind of perennial question, but like there were things he could have done or he could have used the war power sooner or what have you. Um, the point is, you know, and that's why I wanted to talk a little bit about Reconstruction, Re- Lincoln's reconstruction plan because when it comes to just a few weeks after the Gettysburg Address, when it comes to introducing to Congress a plan for beginning to, um, continue to um, cultivate those white Unionists in the Confederate states and bring, try to create constituencies of uh, white Unionists who would represent a state that was out of the Union and try to usher them back into the Union, his plan um, relied on, again, his vision of the Constitution, which gave tremendous power to state governments. And so under his Reconstruction plan, you would have had The 10 percent, you know, a state that had to come to with 10 percent of uh, voters voting under the terms of 1860, um, willing to uh, swear loyalty to the United States, abolish slavery, and they would be able uh, to come back into the Union. But what Lincoln did not do, and this is my point here, just to kind of set the soaring language of the Gettysburg Address against or in relation to the real politique of his Reconstruction plan, what he did not do is say to those white Southerners who would have been coming, bringing states back into normal relations with the United States, you also have to uh, make sure that black, newly emancipated black people have basic civil rights, have the right to vote. Um, He did not say that. He did not, part of his reconstruction plan was not a kind of federal power to push the states to do anything beyond uh, ending slavery. Uh, So my point here is simply to say that The Gettysburg Address merits our attention. That is undeniable. But also to think about it in the context of what is going on at that moment and what Lincoln's views are on the Constitution itself, which are not the same as the soaring rhetoric of equality and the soaring rhetoric of freedom.
0: Sean, Kate just made some powerful points. She said Lincoln didn't move as fast as he could to eradicate slavery, believing it was Legal in the states where it existed before the war and the war power only existed to states in rebellion and under military occupation during the war. And then she said, moving up to Reconstruction, he didn't insist on giving African Americans uh, civil rights and political rights. Is that inconsistent with your view that for Lincoln it was, a, it was not a, a pro, pro-slavery uh, constitution or, or not? I mean, I don't, I'm not trying to construct St. Abraham here. I mean,
2: And Abraham Lincoln was not the only person, by the way, who's doing things in America in 1860 or 1863 or any other time. On the, on the, the question of, of, of getting rid of abolishing slavery where already exists, nobody, hardly anybody, believed that there was an exception to the, what was called, what concerns have called the federal consensus, which is that Congress is indeed has no power over slavery where slavery currently exists. Now. There are arguments about, were the original 13 states the only ones? There are all sorts of ways you can argue about that. But there are very few people, nobody, nobody in a position of political um, responsibility would have been able to support Abraham Lincoln declaring slavery abolished in Alabama. That just was not going to happen in 1860. But there was a long, long tradition of anti-slavery constitutionalism, which was coming up for all sorts of things inside the Constitution that could be used to hasten slavery's extinction. At one point, Lincoln says, you know, how long is it going to take? 10 years? For- it's going to happen. And we can do it in all kinds of ways. We may be able to do, well, abolish the domestic slave trade under the Constitution, under the Commerce Clause of the Constitution. There's all sorts of things we can do to do that. So he comes to the presidency not, not willing to do what he. no one says he constitutionally can do, and for which, being a politician, he has absolutely no political support to do in the North or anywhere else. He can't do that. It's not going to happen. So... But he does have this other tradition, again, drawing on the Constitution, figuring out things inside the Constitution. It goes all the way back. The first person actually tried to do this was Benjamin Franklin in 1790. So what Lincoln is, Lincoln is the, you know, the art of the possible is not just politics, it's constitutionalism as well. Now, the second point I wanted to make is that, yeah, I mean, we're talking about Abraham Lincoln, but there are a lot of other people involved here, including Congress, which is not an insignificant branch of the federal government. And in many ways, Congress had begun the emancipation of the end of slavery long before the Emancipation Proclamation. I mean, you go back to the First Confiscation Act, Second Confiscation Act. In many ways, you know, escaped slaves are, are, are pushing Lincoln. Yes, so is Congress. And a lot, there's a very complicated dynamic of what's going on there. I think the same thing's going to happen, Kate, and I think you'll, I don't know if you'll agree with me or not, but regarding Lincoln and Reconstruction and, and the, pro, you know, if we isolate Lincoln and take him out and see the 10% plan is all that's there, that's, that's true. Lincoln has only evolved to that point, but there's a lot more in play politically and constitutionally that is going to lead him, you know, even to that sort of weird statement at the, in, in his very last speech where he says, you know, that in fact, uh, uh, Black Union veterans, because don't forget the Emancipation Proclamation, by the way, had opened up enlistment of blacks to black soldiers into, into the union army, which in many ways I think actually won the union of the war, but that's another point. But at the very end, his last speech, right? He says, I believe I'm beginning to think he'd been talking to, to Michael Hahn, who was the governor of Louisiana, that, 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 um, um, a certain, certain numbers of black men ought to be given the vote. Those who served with, with us faithfully during the, during the war, which gets back to the Gettysburg address and a certain intelligent. I mean, he had these, all the other things. Now that was, you know, Partial, you know, it was, you know, it was not a, a ringing endorsement of black suffrage by any means, but it was something that led somebody in that audience. John Wilkes Booth, who heard that speech, said that means end citizenship. And a week later, how many days later, he killed Abraham Lincoln. So in some ways, you can say that Lincoln actually was a martyr to even a limited degree of black suffrage moving forward in, in Reconstruction. I suppose my only point here, though, is that we have a way to talk about great men. I mean, we don't, Abraham Lincoln is not the only person involved here. He's the only person who gave the Gettysburg Address, and that, for that, he is solely responsible. Although I know I have an Irish uncle who said that actually an Irishman wrote it, but that's another story. Um, You know, he was on the train, he was a conductor, it's a whole other thing. Nevertheless, politically, everything that is going to the politics around the Emancipation Proclamation, there are many, many forces at work. And we have to, to understand Lincoln, you have to understand those forces as well. that's my only point, and that's true for reconstruction as well, although obviously he doesn't live long enough to push it. but you'll see it you know in the actual history of reconstruction I mean my lord, the the, the pol- political conflicts even inside the Republican party over everything I mean
0: there's a lot more going on than what any president could have done. Thanks so much for that. Uh, Kate, uh, what do you make of Sean's argument that the framers uh, intentionally did not enshrine a right to property and man in the Constitution. And Lincoln emphasized that in concluding that the Constitution was not pro-slavery.
1: I think that what I have been most interested in recently is what actually unfolded between the time of the Constitution and the Civil War. And so um, I think after reading Sean's book and kind of thinking about it, I I mean, my feeling about the original constitution is it could have been a lot worse and it could have been a lot better. Um, And so, you know, it would have been a lot worse for arguments around slavery if the founders of the country had put into the constitution that there was a right to property in man. That would have made the whole struggle against slavery a lot harder. the constitution could have been a lot better if they had actually just outlawed slavery or set it on the road to gradual extinction nationally instead of leaving it up to the states. I mean, and so look, we have the constitution that we have and uh, the developments that happened in the wake of the constitution in the years between the original constitution and when the constitution was essentially remade during reconstruction were a series of, you know, in some ways, a series of arguments about the meaning and implications of the original Constitution. And Lincoln and his colleagues in the, white, you know, in the Republican Party were, uh, you know, although they diverged on certain things, were on one side of that argument. They wanted to amplify the anti-slavery tendencies that existed at the founding. A lot of other people wanted to diminish the anti-slavery ten, uh, feelings at the founding and emphasize the idea that no, you know, like the founders fully believed in slavery and fully sanctioned it. That's what Chief Justice Taney did. Really, I mean, in some ways, that's what Stephen Douglas was about, although in a kind of more muted way. So it is a great debate that Americans engage in, um, and not just white Americans, but as I show in my recent book, "Until Justice Be Done," Black Americans as well extremely engaged in this discussion about what are we, what, you know, and it's not really in some ways about the founding itself. It's really about what kind of a nation do we want to live in now and in the future. So they're constantly using the same way that Americans use now the founding to advance their political arguments. They at that time also used an interpretation of the founding to advance political arguments in their own moment. Lincoln's, you know, side of the equation said we are trying to return our nation to the vision of the founders by by shrinking and eventually eradicating slavery. That was not empirically the vision of all of the founders. That was their political argument for what they were trying to do. My, you know, I think one litmus test was did they have to remake the Constitution or not to get rid of slavery? They did, right? Actually, the founding constitution did not was not capable of abolishing slavery because it had allowed the states to continue to be in control of it. I mean, sure, if slave owners had, you know, come around suddenly to the idea that they should get rid of slavery in places like Alabama and Louisiana and, you know, other places, we could have eventually had a country that didn't have slavery by state action over time. In 1860, it did not look like that was going to happen anytime soon, right? And so in the end, the constitution had to be dramatically revised in order to get rid of the institution of slavery and in order to throw certain kinds of protections around the rights of individuals, particularly African-Americans. And and this is where, you know, I'd love to just pick up briefly on Sean's point that Lincoln's not the only game in town. Of course he's not, right? And so part of why I wanted to bring up Lincoln's vision of reconstruction, because he and, and after him, Andrew Johnson, both had a vision of reconstruction kind of by state action, right? One state at a time, not a lot of change in the, in the role of the federal government in enforcing the rights, particularly of former slaves. Um, what Congress did that was tremendously innovative, both through federal statutes and through the constitutional amendments themselves, was give the federal government, particularly Congress, new power to enforce the abolition of slavery in the States and to throw protections around the rights of individuals, around their political rights, around their civil rights that had never existed in the constitution before. And so I think it's really when you get to the remaking of relations of federalism through the reconstruction amendments that you see the kind of true unfolding um, of the implications of the civil war for the United States. And you see it in a way that Lincoln couldn't possibly have seen it in November of 1863, right? Standing at the Gettysburg um, Cemetery at the dedication, none of that, and, and and kind of none of the, that kind of outcome of the war and the kinds of things that were going to seem necessary um, was necessarily clear to him at that moment.
0: Thanks so much for that. Sean, lots to respond to, including Kate's last point, that the Remaking of federalism that uh, followed uh, in Reconstruction was something Lincoln couldn't have anticipated when he gave the Gettysburg Address. I I agree entirely
2: with with what Kate has to say. I mean, there was a dynamic uh, politically,
0: constitutionally
2: that the war produced, um, however, I, what I would add only is that, is that you know even the 13th Amendment, the people who drafted it and passed it thought it was completely consistent with the original Constitution. That is to say, they did not think they were breaking the Constitution. They didn't think they were undoing the Constitution. They thought they were amending the Constitution. And that had to do with the fact that you know the federal consensus was there. It wasn't that, that, that they thought that, the, that, that, that slavery had been enshrined in the Constitution. It's because they thought that they could not. They had certain powers that they could use and certain powers they couldn't. Right. But unless they abolish slavery with an amendment, as Lincoln says, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation isn't enough. We have to do this. We have to do this now. But that's because of the federal consensus more than anything else. Uh, And and Kate and I agree that, you know, the fact that no property man was it it was a fight. It wasn't. People talk about the framers as if they're all one group. There's a fight going on. There's always the fight that, that Kate mentioned going on in the 19th century. Right. In her absolutely magnificent book, which I'm going to plug heavily. It's an extraordinarily powerful account of how that plays out, not just around slavery, but around racist and anti-racist politics in the North in this period. But there's a struggle, but the struggle was there from the beginning. And the struggle was there even before the beginning. There's always been a struggle about slavery in the United States. It was the first place where it actually started. That struggle is going on inside the convention in in 1787. The Southerners want property in man. The Northerners and the majority of the convention say, no, you're not going to get it. That made all the difference as it happened. Without that, I mean, I would even go beyond what Kate said. If they had recognized property, meant, we would be, you know, they would it would have been impossible. There could have been no constitutional argument against, to, to be made to attack slavery, because it would have been constitutionally recognized as property. Boom. End of story. You know, it would have been, com- you would have had to something, invent something completely outside of American politics to get rid of slavery had that happened. And, but it didn't. So then you had, then you, then you set up that argument. And the argument is going to be there. And it's going to be all the way through. Um, uh, so, and so, and, you know, a, a compromise is a compromise. So, you know, as Kate says, it could have been better. It could have been worse. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. So they're going to be, people are going to look at the, their end of the compromise and say, that's what the part that we have to do. And the others are going to say the other. Although the Southerners are bigger liars than, than not. But we can go into that another, t- the slaveholding Southerners are big liars. And I want to, you know, go into another time. But, um, um, but but there's no, unquestionably, there's a dynamic in which, look, just read the, the Reconstruction amendments and, and see what it, what it empowers Congress to do, which had never been done before, right? There, there's no question that the war itself, that the abolition of slavery gives a thrust to the, reopens questions far beyond those of slavery or indeed of Black citizenship. What does citizenship mean for all Americans? That is opened up by the Civil War. That is opened up by the abolition of slavery. It's a bit like, and, and it, some some people had that figured out pretty early on. Others didn't. But these are issues that come directly out of the fact that you are really look. It's simple. This is a revolution that's happening. Okay, you're not getting rid of the Constitution, but the Constitution you can actually have a revolution under the Constitution. But it is revolutionary. It's the largest sequestration of property in nineteenth century history, maybe in world history. I don't even know. It's gigantic. An entire social order is collapsing. And with that, a political order, and with that, a social order, and with that, a, um, an economic order. All undone. All undone. So coming out of that, there's going to have to be a reconstruction of everything about American life. And the question is, how are you going to bring the Constitution of the United States in sync with that? And that is exactly the story, I think. That, so one of the stories, there's many interesting stories, of what's going on around the Reconstruction Amendments and how they're put together um, is a way is how do you how do you how do you have a revolution under a constitution, you know? It seems completely right. I mean, every time the French have a revolution, they have a new a new constitution, right? It's they they did not do that yet. This was as revolutionary, if not more. I think this is the greatest revolution in not, in modern history, the, emancip- the emancipation of the slaves, in, in, and certainly the most successful because we haven't had slavery back. It's not been successful in many ways, but you know what I'm saying, right? It was the greatest revolution in modern history, and yet it was conducted under the Constitution of the United States. That seems extraordinary to me. So how you go? Yeah, go ahead, Kate. Sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. So that seems extraordinary to me, and 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 that's a lot. That's part of the history we're talking about. Um, um, You know, it is a second founding, but it's a second founding that you know that they actually work quite deliberately to keep in line with the first. Now, you know, how you do precisely for the reason that Kate said earlier was that they did not want to see the constitution of the nation destroyed. They did not want to make it sound as if, you know, we had to undo what, our foref- what the founding fathers did in order to get here. They wanted there to be continuity precisely because to do anything else would have been to admit d- that democracy had failed. And they are saying democracy did not fail,
0: but we're going to expand it. That's their point. Kate, I'd love for you to respond to all that with some final thoughts, then we'll sum up. But uh, Sean just said, Uh, the central question was, how do you have a revolution under the Constitution? That was the central question of Reconstruction. Do you agree with that? And did Lincoln see that at Gettysburg, that really it was necessary to have a revolution under the Constitution? Or was he not able to see that from his vantage point?
1: Well, I I think um, it's I I don't, I think it's a little bit of a I don't know what the right word is, like an exaggeration to say that we had a, a revolution under the Constitution. Considering how many times in the period of the Civil War and early Reconstruction, um, the U.S. government acted under war powers, so they, they were actually constantly acting outside of the bounds of the Constitution. Um, and so they come back into peacetime with a kind of plan for peacetime that is represented by the Reconstruction Amendments, but they haven't been acting within the bounds of the constitution for a number of years in order to prosecute the war and then figure out a way to keep the Southern states that had seceded kind of under military rule while they figure out the plan for what's gonna happen next. So, you know, the the United States could have gone in a lot of different directions at that time, uh, uh, including, you know, toward extended military rule or a dictatorship as some people feared that, you know, Grant would become, and and then the United States like circles back to civilian rule under a drastically revised constitution. And I think, you know, there's a kind of argument that we're still in about how revised that constitution really was, right? Like, and how effective the revision of the constitution through those three amendments actually was. Um, so if you take into consideration that uh, a lot, that this was not a uh, smooth kind of, Uh, transition from one constitutional order to another, but rather one that went through a serious military stage in which the constitutional order was disrupted or or kind of uh, put on hold for a while, then I think I more or less agree. I want to say one thing, and that brings us back to the Declaration of Independence and maybe to Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Um, you know, Jeff asked if about the, um, would Lincoln have known that the United States was gonna need a new con- basically a new constitution in 1863? I mean, one thing I wanna say about the ways that people talk about the constitution, and this is a little bit of a disagreement with Sean, you know, the idea that, okay, if the constitution had recognized property in man, um, some kind of anti-slavery critique would have had to come from outside the constitution. That may be true, but like we had it in the Declaration of Independence. And so, you know, you see over and over again, anti-slavery people, African-Americans, also women as they're organizing for um, greater rights, evoking the Declaration of Independence as a principle of equality among all people um, that is not actually instantiated in the constitution, particularly the first version of the constitution from 1787 to 1865. And so, um, you know, Lincoln, and this is part of why I kind of made the argument that the constitution is not present in the Gettysburg Address is because Lincoln Is talking about the Declaration of Independence here. The Declaration of Independence, as it happens, is this really important, enlightenment-informed founding document of the United States that has no real legal or political implication in the sense that it is not a a kind of entity that structures our government. I think many Americans actually remain confused about this. I talked to a bunch of high school students recently um, who said, well, how could the how could the Northern states have had these anti-Black laws when we had the Declaration of Independence that said that all people are created equal? It was like, I'm sorry to tell you that the Declaration of Independence is not a binding document, but the Declaration of Independence is not insignificant. It allowed, it it was a document that many Americans admired that allowed people from um, marginalized groups, groups that wanted inclusion or wanted respect or dignity to um, grab onto that document and in, in many cases mobilize it against the Constitution. And so I think you know before we you know decide that there wouldn't have been any anything in the American specifically American tradition um, for people to draw on if the Constitution had been even more pro-slavery than it was. I think we should actually think about the ways that people did go outside the Constitution using the Declaration of Independence, as Lincoln did at Gettysburg, um, to bring these kind of different ideals. Into, um, into the mainstream of American life.
0: Thank you so much for that. Well, it's time for closing thoughts in this wonderful discussion. So much more to say. We'll be continuing a discussion of the relation between the Declaration, the Constitution, and Lincoln's vision in a town hall uh, at the Constitution Center in a few weeks. But for now, I'm going to uh, give myself the great privilege of reading the first sentence again and asking for your final thoughts. So here we go. Four score and seven years ago. Our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Sean, final thoughts for We the People listeners about what those words tell us about Lincoln's vision and the relation between the Declaration and the Constitution.
2: Well, he's uh, rooting—Lincoln, in that opening, is rooting the nation in the Declaration. That was when the nation was conceived. That's when the nation started and started around the idea of equality. That's really what he's saying. Um, and as far as the relationship with the Constitution is concerned, he thinks that the Constitution must necessarily embody those concepts. That's the organic connection that he is making. Um, he doesn't mention the Constitution, obviously. But he is bringing us back to 1776. He's bringing us back to Jefferson, as he had said, indeed, in a letter before, in 1859, I think it is, all honored to Jefferson. You know, he he thinks the same thing, as, as Kay was just mentioning, that this is a, an expansive idea, which goes beyond even, you know, beyond the Constitution, but he thinks is inside the Constitution. That's the constitutional part of it. Um, um, but what he is really doing is really talking about the sacrifice being made in the war. He's about to give a speech dedicating a battlefield where, you know, many, many thousands t- have died. And he's trying to talk about that vision, and he's trying to talk about that cause, and he's rooting that cause in the equality that is pronounced in the Declaration of Independence. That's what that first
0: sentence does. Thank you so much for that. Kate, last word in this wonderful discussion. To you, what does that first sentence tell us about Lincoln's view of the relation between the Declaration and the Constitution?
1: Oh, well, I think that... The first sentence doesn't tell us very much about the relation between the Declaration and the Constitution, because I'm going to maintain that the Constitution is not really in this first sentence. But I do think that um, what the first sentence does, it reminds us, and I I would like to put this out there in a kind of present-minded way, it reminds us of the long-standing ways that Americans have attached themselves to the founding for a variety of reasons. He's standing on the battlefield at Gettysburg talking. The first thing he does is take his listeners to 1776 and what our fathers, as he said, wanted. And in his vision, that is they conceived this nation in liberty, dedicated it to the proposition that all men are created equal. This is one of the best ideas that's come out of the United States. And uh, it's, you know, it's a good reminder, um, both of that ideal in the Declaration of Independence and also um, the ways in which it has always been a powerful rhetorical tool to attach oneself to the founding.
0: Thank you so much, Sean Wilentz and Kate Mazur, for a superb, deep, and provocative discussion. What a great way to celebrate Thanksgiving and the anniversary of the Gettysburg Address. Sean, Kate, thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks so much. Bye. Today's show was produced by Jackie McDermott and engineered by Greg Sheckler. Research was provided by Michael Esposito, Chase Hansen, Sam Desai, and Lana Ulrich. This is the last We the People episode produced by Jackie McDermott, who's moving on to a great new job after three wonderful years. As a result, We the People is looking for a new podcast producer. To apply, please check out our website, constitutioncenter.org forward slash about forward slash careers. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the passion, the generosity, the engagement of listeners like you. And we're thrilled to be launching this great new crowdsourcing campaign with a generous match, thanks to our friends at the John Templeton Foundation. So every dollar of your support will be doubled, up to a total of $234,000. Please give any amount, $5, $10, or more, at our website, constitutioncenter.org forward slash we the people. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, happy Thanksgiving. I'm Jeffrey Rosen.